Welcome back to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. How are you doing, Courtney? Doing pretty good. No, I think I'm doing I'm doing pretty darn okay. Good for now you. Good. Took a little as, while. As people may have noticed, we have a new intro on our show. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. It took a lot. It took a little time. It did take the some time. The art of the intro is this not easy. This was a process. This was it a process. Was. There, was, there were debates. There was serious discussion of Taylor Dane at oh, one point. Should have Taylor Dane, man. <laughs> if we did a video podcast, then I think we could do Taylor Dane because we could play her video. Right, and she's a visual artist. Let's she's a visual artist. It's the whole package. It doesn't work just in like two D. When she tells it to your heart, you need eye contact. <laughs> you <laughs> have think. to see that crimped out hair. It's oh, unbelievable. She is a legend, a master, she, if you will. <laughs> she looks like she should be like Fergie's mom, doesn't she? She does. Yeah, not sure if that's a good thing. Probably not. Sorry, Taylor. Yes, but tennis we haven't talked about in a while we didn't get to do a show when we were together in singapore for whatever reason um, which is probably unimpressive on our part but now we are on separate continents neither of which is asia and talking about that and all the other tennis stuff that's going on right now so we have a lot to catch up on kind of sorta that we do so just to clarify ben is in europe mm-hmm. covering paris Bercy. i am in north america covering my bed Oh, like a like a duvet. Like a duvet. It's just been just been lovely the last week of just sleeping. Because you had a, quite a long trip in Asia. Do you feel recovered yet, Courtney? Or are you still <laughs> half a foot in that world mentally? I am not. Well, no, I'm not like I'm not mentally there because I think I was over it. <laughs> yeah. So I was ready to come home definitely when it was time to go. Uh, but I do feel still discombobulated. I'm like still catching up on life things on just not being behind a firewall anymore yeah uh, playing with my dogs and hoping that they remember what i look like all that sort of stuff so and then on top of that i've had technology issues for the last like five days so yeah it's been not great yeah and then on top of that it's the mad scramble to get ready for london for the world tour finals so yeah it's like i haven't been able to completely settle down my roots yet after when i get home from london and there's the actual off season then i'll be able to chill out so on this show we'll talk about what happened in singapore the winning of Serena Williams, the second placing of Simona Halep, who might have been served better by losing more, and good showings by Carolyn Wozniacki and putting a bow on the WTA season, I guess. And then we'll talk about the men winding down, and then some recent discussions in British media about men versus women and daylight robbery and all sorts of fun topics, which we'll just love talking about, won't we? Love. Love. I'm making a heart with my hand. You know, like I'm in a 40 love video. Let's get to it. This was the WTA's debut in Singapore this year. The first of a five-year planned rotation through the city-state. As you were getting off the plane, if someone asked you, Courtney, how was Singapore? What would you say? It was good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's exactly how how I would say it. And what I have been saying to um, to all my friends and family who've been asking about it is it was it was good. It was great. It was fine. Singapore is a lovely city. It's very clean. It's very wealthy. It's really organized. At the same time, those things are not necessarily things that I personally value and enjoy. 
So I think that a lot of other people might really enjoy kind of the, the, the orderly nature of Singapore. I, it made me really, really miss the absolute disaster at times that was Istanbul because mm-hmm. it kind of made life a little bit interesting on a daily basis. You didn't yeah. know what the heck was going to happen. So yeah, so I, I felt like the city was just not really my kind of city. It's not a place that I would go to as a tourist. But at the same time, I thought the tennis was great. I thought it was an absolutely kind of amazing week of tennis. I mean, there was just memorable matches after memorable matches and great storylines and just a lot going on at the Singapore indoor arena the entire week. So I thought that was really great. And the crowds came out, which was awesome. Yeah, really like good hundred and 126 or 129,000 over 10 days, which is pretty impressive. So yeah, so so I mean, it was great. And I think that it's a great place to stage the event. Just from a personal level, it just wasn't really my kind of town. Yeah, that was the thing. I think a lot of that also had to do with where we were sort of located and where a lot of the WTA events were located within Singapore. We're in the sort of marina area for anyone who's familiar with the the town. Um, and it was very pedestrian, unfriendly, and a bunch of like very new, built-up shopping malls everywhere. And it was like you had to keep walking through shopping malls to get anywhere. And the shopping malls were huge, and you felt like you were in some sort of weird underground city. And that's not a feeling I like, although the weather outside was often gross and humid. So it wasn't always... T- and that's clearly why they have all these shopping malls. But yeah, in general, I agree with you. The city didn't do a lot for me, but I feel like maybe if I had done it completely differently, I might have liked the city itself more. Yeah, I think you and I were talking about that on our very last day, right? Which is because we finally got an opportunity to go and visit like kind of the more interesting parts of of Singapore, which were great. And I would love to go back to those areas and kind of explore more, you know, have a day to just sit and people watch and stuff like that. That was all fine and good. Um, But yeah, where we were staying was just it just was not, not working for me at all and I think maybe the first or second day I I I made a comment to Ben you know it it feels like Vegas without all the hedonism and debauchery like all of the bad stuff that 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 Vegas is known for like imagine all that's gone but you still have all these gigantic malls and fake canals uh and casinos. basically casinos and kind of the Venetian Bellagio except they don't smell like smoke and I don't know if that's your thing then that's great but it was just tough because, yeah, there wasn't much to do, to do. And then when you actually wanted to go, like, walk around and actually, like, motivate to go see or do something, the weather was oppressive. Yeah. It was disgusting. It so was like it was hard. Yeah, it was Vegas without the debauchery and with, like, a lot of rules. You just got the sense that you were in a, st- like, a place where there were, like, laws constantly and there were a little bit of fun police around. Even if they weren't always visible, you just got the sense that it was kind of a restricted society and you hear that from people you know they have rules against chewing gum and when you get off the plane that you get a little like entry card and in big all caps letters it says you know drug traffickers will be punished by death and i I wasn't doing any drug trafficking but still you know when you get off the plane they say by the way if you do this we'll kill you it's yeah it's a bit of a buzz kill and Uh, it's so expensive yes yeah like, the first so that was expensive. the thing, and I should. This was my fault because I didn't ask in the beginning. But I was at the bar in our hotel, and on the first night, I just got like I was just thirsty because it was very humid. I was sort of dehydrated, so I got uh, these little bottles of just like carbonated water. They were little. They were like probably like eight ounces, and I drank four of them, and they wound up being like eleven dollars each. And so I spent forty four dollars on water. <laughs> I was not thrilled with anything including I, I play myself largely but i also didn't 
Because yeah. who charges $11 for water? Who does that? It's, Singapore. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like like I said, it, it looks like it's going to be a great host for five years. Oh, a totally competent host. And the draw ceremony, I should say, was amazing. That was awesome, actually, for that sure. That was really good. The crowd they got there, people were into it. The crowds from the very first uh, session were near capacity and stayed pretty much that way the whole time. Yep. So all that, that would, part was yep. good. Great host, just yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so the actual tennis wise, the eight women who were there um, competed in a round robin format, and Serena Williams came out the winner. She might not have come out the winner, however. Let's just get right to this because this was the main, I think, uh, water cooler topic in Singapore. Uh, Serena would not have gotten to the final if Simona Halep had lost her, who had already qualified for the semifinals, had or had lost her final round robin match against Anna Ivanovic in straight sets. Halep had a big lead in the first set and then blew it, and then sort of claw, clawed back to win the second set, thereby eliminating Ivanovic, who needed to win in straights to advance. Um, and then Ivanovic wound up winning the match in three. Simona, who had absolutely smoked Serena in round robin, 0-2 in one of the strangest, most unexpected results I've ever seen, then eventually lost to Serena pretty badly, 3-0 and in the final. So... This was a big topic of discussion of ethics, of game theory in tennis, and the weirdness of round robin, which I was pretty grateful for a lot of reasons that week that we only have to deal with not very often because it's a headache having to do scenarios and tiebreakers and all that stuff, and not to mention this element of it. But, Courtney, what did you make of the debate about what Simona should have done, and should she have lost that second set, do you think? Intention um, should she have not given her best effort to win the second set? I think there's a couple. I mean, that's kind of obviously that's a loaded question. But yeah. I think that first of all, my my thought, my thinking, if I was Simona Halep's coach, I would have said, look, go out there, play the first set. You know, you're still, you know, she's coming off of a long break. You want to get some some. Uh, you know, play in and, and get your rhythm and things like that. So go. And, and just to add, she hadn't had a tough match in her first two. Exactly. So yeah. go, like, 100% commit, play that first set as though it's like a Grand Slam final. Like, play it. Now, mm-hmm. however that's that turns out, then you have to think about it. Because if I'm Simona Halep's coach, I tell her, there's no way that this should go three sets. Because you have to play a match the next day. Mm-hmm. You've already qualified. So it's not about tanking to me. Like everybody's like, oh, you're telling she sh- you sh- you're saying that she should like intentionally lose. No, I'm not saying you go in there and you intentionally lose. I'm just saying that there's no reason that match should go more than two sets. And I think that there is a me- and I the a, a strategy of conserving energy for a turnaround that's going to be less than 24 hours later to play a semifinal and you're going to have to play three straight days. So in terms of conserving energy, if you drop that first set, I do think that you kind of like, you know, conserve the rest of your energy and you just play out the second set, try and hold your serve, you know, and if you get broken, so be it. But I think that if you have the opportunity, the whole point here, and this is something that where I think that it becomes a very difficult thing for tennis fans, is that in every tournament other than this tournament throughout the entire year, the goal of winning a tournament, which is the ultimate goal, yeah. is 100% in line with winning the match that you have to play. Yeah. 
right? Exactly. It's a bra- it's a knockout system. Like, you know, like in order to win the tournament, which again, the goal is not to win a match. The goal is to win a tournament. Then the goal is that you win. Then you have to win every match because that's how tennis works. In a round robin format, the goal is, okay, to win the tournament, but you don't necessarily have to win every match. Yeah. And I think in that situation, I think Simona Halep and team made a strategically poor decision. They should have let that match go. It would have knocked out Serena and, you know, it would have upped her chance. Yeah, they would have rested your player. You know, it's kind of win-win on every level. And what Halep did, which is going three grueling sets against Ivanovic, those were not easy points that they were playing, to turn around against Redvanska, who she obviously beat, but then, like, come the next day, she said, like, she was tired against Serena, that she wasn't at her best and couldn't play at her best. So, you know, armchair quarterbacking it? Like, I don't know. You could have conserved your energy and you wouldn't have played Serena. Seems like you, you let that match go. And I think that there's some less. It's less unethical to do something that's in the best interest of you winning the tournament. Right. With and it's within the rules. I mean, it's not like she. There's no rule that says you have to absolutely kill yourself to win every single match. You can give a good effort. She wasn't going out there and you know intentionally double faulting. No one's saying she should have done that. But you can after you lose the first set, think, you know, softly. And there's the people have done this in round robins at the world at the world tour finals and the wta champs all the time i remember one time in la i think when it was there uh maybe it was in madrid sharapova had never lost to petrova before but then suddenly sharapova was playing like a dead rubber last round robin match and lost to petrova in like quick straights and petrova was so excited to finally beat sharapova (laughs) and petrova Sharapova was so unfazed by losing it was pretty great um yeah so that kind of thing can happen and that's fine i think that it's not there's nothing underhanded about trying to win the tournament because the goal I mean, is to that, win that the does, tournament. That doesn't hurt the integrity of the game exactly it's not i totally agree with that that's 100 percent. yeah she's not like taking a big check from some gambler to throw a match it's not match fixing at all i don't that term does not apply to this whatsoever um the, and that's just on the conserving energy part of it, too. The getting getting Serena out is a huge added bonus. Right. Although, who knows, maybe when you just beat Serena 0-2, you're like, eh, who cares about that girl? But, uh, yeah. No, to me, to me, not. it was really about more just the, the conserving of energy. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, just like in World Cup or, you know, other sort of group play type systems or, or formats, I never like the idea of, like, playing to lose to get yourself, like, a better seed. Mm-hmm. Or or worse seed like or better matchup, yeah. right? You know, like whatever to to play the matchups. I don't like the idea of that, but uh, but I don't blink twice if a team has already qualified for the playoffs and or to the group and decides to play their entire B squad. That yeah. makes sense to me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why would you put your best players out on the field and risk them getting hurt when you you know already that you're moving on to the next round? That's all I'm saying conceptually. Like what Halep should have done, which is like you should conserve your energy. And even if that means going into it, even if that means like they say, you know what, don't try and win the first set. Let's get this out into like whatever it is. But I think that that going that full three sets was just bad news. Yeah, losing in three is like <laughs> the one <laughs> thing that makes no sense at all. Because at least winning, you get extra money, you get extra, extra points, bonus points. Yeah. But like you, you did the, you just every single thing. It's like you. You kicked yourself in the nuts, shot yourself in the face, and then punched <laughs> yourself in the balls again. Like, it's that no longer exists because you shot him off. Like, it's all these things in one. It's like, dude, you just messed that up on every level. That was a lot of testes references for Simona Halep, who, dude, by the way, as far as we know, do not does not have those. Yes. So, yeah. So, Simona gets to the final, gets killed. Serena wins. Let's talk about Serena. Serena, 
she says it's not a good year for her. It, though she was obviously a little more upbeat after <laughs> winning the the tournament um, in that moment. But do you think this is a categorically good year for Serena? Bad? She finishes number one, which was that was the other thing with we didn't talk much about the white group. But Sharapova actually blew a 5-1 lead in the second set that if she'd closed it out against Radwanska, she would have made the semis and had a very real possibility. Well, not if she had to play Serena, but would have had a possibility of finishing the number one. Is Serena the number one of the year to you? And is this a good year for her? Can it be a bad year for a number one? What are, what are your thoughts? It's so hard. With I mean, is it a good year? I think anytime you win a slam it's a good year. Can't be a disaster. If right. I mean, the, yeah. that's not like, oh, what a shitty year you had. No, not at all. But was it a great year for Serena? No, because she'll say as much. And I do think that sometimes you do have to take into consideration what a player says and 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 what they think, whether they're not true or false. But I think that at the end of the day, I mean, what was it, seven titles? Yeah, it was a lot of titles. It was a lot of titles. You know, um, seven titles, number one, wire to wire, U.S. Open, winning eight, number 18, um, whatever her record was against like the top. I think Halep was maybe just her first loss to a top 10 player this year or something like that. That sounds right. Yeah. Either first or second, no more than two. Yeah. I mean, that's a ridiculous season. There's no way around it. And I just think that at the end of the day, she had three bad tournaments. Okay, they just just happen to be the majors. Yeah. And the right. other time she and was any other exactly or or you know Yana Chepalova happened, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was still sick and tired and sick and injured sort of. Yeah, I forgot about that one. That was I know, funny. right? I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, oh my god, was that this year? <laughs> I still remember sprinting across the grounds when we were watching Jeannie Taylor doubles, right in in Charleston. And somebody like tapped us on the shoulder and was like, uh, Serena's down love five. We're like, what? But yeah, so I, I think this is still whatever you would use to describe something between good and great. That's that's the year that Serena had, I think. I think that's fair. And the only reason I downgrade it is because she, she downgrades it. And because I think it's fair <laughs> for her to come in with big expectations when, you, when she talks about the sort of when she embraces on some level the playing against history, the wanting to tie Martina and Chris, you know, and add to her count playing into the record book this was not a year that did a lot for her against the record book i mean she did go wire to wire number one which really surprisingly to me hadn't been done since 1996 that's pretty weird that hasn't happened since then when you consider there have been some pretty dominant players over some periods with uh hennen with serena earlier with even kingis was in that range and davenport it's surprising that none of them ever put together uh, calendar year at number one before. Even Wozniacki, I think, had 51 weeks in 2011, which is missing one to Kleister's. So from that level, it's hard to hard to knock it. But this was a year on the WTA where there wasn't really a undisputed dominating leader because Serena's wobbles came so frequently when it mattered most. And, it, and, it, and that does matter. Yeah. So from the other, from Serena to the her opposite number on the men's side, Novak Djokovic, the ATP number one, solidified his hold on that ranking and made it look pretty likely that he's going to be the year-end number one when all is said and done, uh, winning Paris-Bercy, defending his title here, becoming the first person ever to defend this title, which is kind of a weird stat, because um, the tournament's been around for a couple decades, at least more than that. Let's compare the two. Who's had the better year, Courtney, Serena or Novak? Ooh. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Serena? 
Explain. Hold on. Let me think about this. <laughs> okay. I think they've actually had really similar years. Yeah, they really... Ways. They have. You know what? No. Uh, I think I'd have to go, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Ben. You take this one. Okay, I I'll have say no Novak. idea. I'll say Novak, because okay. Novak's, Novak got much deeper in slams than Serena did. They each won one title, but Novak also made a final... He made a semi in New York, and he made a quarter in Australia. Serena only made it to the quarters once in a slam, which is a huge edge to Novak, if you want to talk about slam performance in general. He won four Masters events, which is pretty solid. He's a bigger sort of lead on number one, because Serena really did sort of squeak it out at the end. Unless Roger wins London, uh, Novak's going to have a pretty sizable lead at the end of the year. And Novak, he seemed like his results were more in line with his expectations because he did not start the year number one rafa was the number one at the beginning of the year and novak overtook rafa whereas serena i think started out with a huge huge lead and watched that lead slip away so i think expectations were higher for serena at the beginning of the year and so i think novak did more to meet or surpass his expectations for the year if you said at the end of 2013 that novak would win wimbledon and end 2014 number one, I think I would be like, oh, it's a good year for Novak. Whereas with Serena, I don't think that would be the case. Yeah, no, I think I think at the end of the day, I agree with that. Um, I think it's still, I guess for myself, I'm trying to like kind of, it's hard for me to kind of uh, gauge their performance this year against what we've come to expect from them. So I was trying to mm-hmm. calibrate. Those are two kind of moving slides and I'm trying to figure it out. But I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, Novak against stiffer competition than what Serena has right now, I think we do have to take that into consideration as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're still able to do a, re- a bunch of remarkable things this year. Um, obviously, winning Wimbledon was a major one. Getting the double Indian Wells Miami, also massive. And in each situation, I mean, he was beating the game's best to do it. It's not like he was running up against you know, kind of randoms in the finals or anything like that. And so these were quality runs through and through. And you have to, you know, you have to tip your cap, especially in light of everything that was going on in his life. And there was a time this year where we were kind of questioning Novak and we were wondering what's up with this guy. He can't close out matches. He can't close out wins. He gets these leads and he, oh, there he goes, blowing another one against Rafa in the final. You know, all these different things. And so but but he was able to kind of rebound. He's also had that little injury scare in the clay season. So, you know, and bounce back from that and then marriage baby, you know, and bounces back pretty well. He survived the whole weird Becker coaching thing. I mean, he did survive Boris. He's had a phenomenal year. It's just been weirdly. It's been hard to put that in. Yeah, to think of it that way. I don't know why. Because do you think that he's a better year than Roger? Well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people would be especially with the number one being as close as it is if it had stayed closer and finished closer i think a lot of people were prepared to give roger player of the year type accolades because of and there's more narrative with him i think even though he didn't win a slam which obviously i think you should need to do to become player of the year that seems like a pretty basic requirement to me roger his last year was so disappointed by his standards that what he did was so beyond what people probably expected from him and I don't know, people were, like I said, it's about expectations at the beginning. Roger right. so exceeded expectations, and Novak didn't exceed them, really. I think he matched them, probably. And so for Roger, yeah, I think a lot of people gravitate to that. And it's all part of, I mean, I think we still exist in a very Fed-centric tennis mindset as a culture. He is the leading slam winner of all time on the men's side. And so people always see things from his lens. He remains sort of the 
protagonist on the tour, I think, no matter what. It's hard to think of him ever as being a supporting character at any tournament. He is the guy who is the headline guy. He still drives the most traffic online. He still has the most, you know, fans, it seems like. He has any crowd on his side anywhere in the world. I can get caught up on that. And he can, even though he won two Masters to Novak's four, and he never won a slam, and, you know, all these other things he kind of fell short on, it did feel... I mean, this wasn't a year that had anybody controlling. We talk about Serena being in control of the year and having basically the the year on the WTA was Serena winning comprehensively when she did. And then when she fell apart, it kind of was a free for all on the men. It was kind of a bit of a free for all the whole time. Yeah. I mean, with Vavrinka and Chilich both winning slams, there was never, it never really felt like there was one player to beat at any point, which is weird. It is weird. That's definitely that's definitely true. I mean, I wonder as you're talking about kind of the Roger thing, there are a lot of actual similarities I can see. Obviously, hers was just for six months, but with respect to Caroline Wozniacki, she was kind of the Roger of the WTA. Yeah, totally. Insofar as like there was a there is like a, a it was I guess the feel good story in a lot of ways with Caroline and who you know our expectations were pretty low at the at the beginning of the year and obviously they remained low through the French Open um, and then what she was able to do you know since June is is incredible I think uh, I didn't rerun the numbers but at least going into uh, the WTA finals she was the winningest player since June. Yeah. On, the, on the WTA tour, which is pretty impressive, makes a slam final. Didn't win that many titles, but you know was constantly there. Everything, but there were there were kind of similarities when you're talking about the Fed thing. I was like, oh, it kind of felt like like Caroline a little bit. That's very true. I hadn't I hadn't linked those two, but they definitely do seem like the parallels. Um, let's because we're here at the Caroline Juncture. Let's talk briefly about the marathon, mm-hmm. which or we can talk briefly about her tennis too. I mean, she played great in Singapore, went deep in a third set tiebreak with Serena, went three zero in group. We had 4-1 on the tiebreak, uh, got a couple bad neck cords, didn't help her out. Um, she's very quick to point out. Uh, the Yeah, her end of the season was great. She seems like power rankings-wise, I think she's easily a top three or four player right now. Probably four behind Serena, Pova, and Halep, I'm guessing. She's probably the easy number four there. Even though she's just number eight at the ranking, she does not have a lot of points to defend at all early next year. And I think she could very easily win a slam in 2015 with how she's playing right now. If she can keep up this momentum and this motivation and whatever's driving her right now. But let's talk about the running because the running was a thing that happened and people were <laughs> tracking it. I at least was tracking it the whole time watching her splits go by. And it was impressive. I don't know if anybody really thought that she would do that well. I know when we were talking in Singapore, Courtney, a lot of us were quietly being like, I don't know. I mean, she seems really seriously undercooked on this marathon prep. I mean, you do not run a marathon having never run more than a half marathon before. There's a lot of work that usually gets done in between there. Not just that, but even like when she was saying that when she arrived in China, she really didn't train that much in China. Like yeah. there wasn't an opportunity for her to kind of do a lot of the build up marathon training that I have friends who run marathons. Some run them all the time. Some run them sporadically. And they all tell you that the, the, the build up training, the, the kind of interval, not interval training, but the, the yeah, the build up of there's an actual schedule of like lengths yeah. that you need to be running to build up your stamina is like a very real thing. And then like she, you know, goes to a Halloween party, gets home at four in the morning, hangs out with Serena's double fisting 
mouthfuls of popcorn, you know, less than 12 hours before she's yeah. supposed to run. Go, like going to the Rangers game was the one that really threw me. Like that's yeah. the night before. Get some sleep, lady. She that said was a she, night game. And she said she didn't eat breakfast, like because the, the start was so early. So she just had two bagels in like the start tent and then like ran. And I'm like, I, I genuinely the whole time I was following her split times primarily because the whole time I was just thinking, like, I really hope she doesn't get hurt. Like, yeah. I really hope that, like, nothing happens. Like, she's, like, able to do this, you know, just finish the race. And, and like, she's all, like, smiling and shit. Like, she's, like, <laughs> in the second. I'm like, what are Who are I mean, it was bloody impressive, I have to say. And seriously impressive. Yeah, I, I just I tipped my hat. That was that was that was remarkable stuff. And I was definitely one of the cynics from before who was just like enough with all this talk about the marathon race. I, you know, like during ever since she announced that she was doing it. So I'm glad that it's over for everyone's sake. But specifically, like I was I was really, really happy for Caroline and really impressed by what she was able to do. Yeah, that's impressive. And that shows what an incredible athlete she is and it's a nice testament to tennis that tennis because mm-hmm. she was doing some running but mostly her condition was all via tennis so i guess it's not really a shock that tennis and distance running work decently well together because of the amount of running that goes on in tennis over a long period of time even if it is more of an interval running situation with the you know off and on of points and between points or whatever but i also her. think so much of it is it, it speaks volumes about the tennis mentality Mm-hmm. Because it, as a professional tennis player, like even though, yes, it's interval um, anaerobic uh, sport, like you yeah. stop every 15 to 20 seconds, you get a 30 second break or whatever. But like you're constantly a under pressure. And in those long protracted games, especially the way that Caroline plays and a lot of the top guys play, like you are fighting through like a pain wall all yeah, the time. Totally. Like you are exhausted all the time. And uh, I, so you I think you got to convince yourself that you're not exhausted. Exactly. You have to just, you know, when the bell rings, you step up to the line and you 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 play and you play hard. And and I think that that's something that is very overlooked a lot of times with tennis is 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 that the, the pros do have to do that and they become very, very good at it, I think. Um, and uh, so, yeah, like just her ability to kind of fight through the multiple, you know, walls that she did hit throughout the marathon and just kind of bust through them no big deal i think that that's a credit massively to to her in particularly and her mentality um which we've those of us who watch her all the time know exists but also it is a credit to to the entirety of tennis because i think that most professional tennis athletes just have kind of i don't know your brain's been trained to do that yeah no i totally agree and tennis players have frequently gone into marathoning and all done relatively well i mean no one no one has been awful out there that i can think of right so even people you don't think of as being super fast like uh like a gimmel stop i think actually did a marathon and did pretty decently not decently but he finished it and he was not somebody who was a wozniacki type you know uh i don't know what to call wozniacki but like a real wozniacki's like a speedster on court and gimmel stop was the opposite of that and even he did fine right so there you go yep this will be our last show before the World Tour Finals in London, affectionately known as the WTFs. Not affectionately, that's just what they're called. That's the acronym. I still <laughs> exactly. can't believe that in this relatively recently, they changed the name to the WTFs. I don't know how that passed any sort of inspection. But anyway, WTFs coming up, eight players in them, and they are Djokovic, Federer, Vavrinka, Chilich, Burdich, Ronich, Nishikori, 
and uh, Murray, Andy Murray. Uh, those are your field thoughts on the field, how it shook out. It's a little bit of a new look field, a lot of new faces, quite a few first time players in Nishikori and Ronich and Chilich. Yeah, I, so what I, do you think? I like the field. I like the field. It's a good one, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it yields good matches. I mean, that's the big question. That's the problem. I'm not sure, honestly, like, with, without the exception of, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where the great matchups lie in the top eight right now. Minus Rafa. Sure. I don't know what, sure. like, no, what, that's what, still... no, talk about what would be your dream matchup from that eight. In terms of just wanting to see two players go head to head? Mm-hmm. I want to see Nishikori against everybody. Okay. I would love to see him against Roger. No, I mean, I think K is probably, to me, the most interesting out of the eight, just because if he plays well, he can beat them all. <laughs> so true. that's like, you know, that's, that's in an, and he just has a dynamic game that's, that's fun to watch. So yeah, so that, that's probably the one, I mean, obviously the tried and true rivalries, you know, um, Fed Stan is not one that I don't mind that one at all. Um, if Stan plays well, which is a big, I mean, that's the big question mark, you know? Stan's year has been a mess. We can talk about him very briefly. It's been here. a mess. I mean, he, his, I mean, like, it's a great mess. He wouldn't trade this mess, but it's been a mess. I mean, for somebody who won a slam and won a Masters, like, the rest of his year was arguably garbage. It really was. Like, he didn't have any other yeah. remotely satisfying moments. Even the Wimbledon, he and made a Wimbledon quarter. Yeah, he made, yeah, he, he totally admits that. He made a Wimbledon quarter, but it wasn't really a tough draw at all. And he didn't play very well in that quarter against Roger. And then everything else has been hugely underwhelming especially this fall and now he's got a davis cup final coming up and who the hell knows what that'll be like it's interesting he's got a very interesting year very interesting i mean that's the big problem is like you know who's going to go into that into the world tour finals and play well you know to be Raonic's first time and who knows with milos chilich because yes he won moscow but um he hasn't played for a while maybe that's a good thing who knows but i don't anticipate that the world Tour finals is going to have what the WTA finals had was like every day there was like a match that ended up being pretty epic um, so many good and really there. riveting. Um, yeah, the, yeah the, I think that the, the WTA, uh, sorry, the World Tour finals are going to be a little bit more okay. So that match happened, it was a four and four win, three and four win, you know, that sort of things. So yeah, we'll see. But I think that I think that Nishikori is the game changer in that entire field. Otherwise, we're looking at a Novak and a Roger final. Yeah, we'll see. And I'm interested to see what Chilich does. I would love to see, like, Roger get another crack at Chilich after what happened in, in New York and see what happened there. I mean, if he, to the extent that Chilich is an interesting matchup for anybody. I think some people looking for U.S. Open revenge or, like, a U.S. Open do-over, let's say, including Nishikori, if they could play each other. That'd be interesting. One I'd person, love to see Chilich, like, tear through the draw. It'd be great. I'd love to see him, like, I think, you know, I think validate that would be great. His, his U.S. Open win. Yeah, if he can back it up. That'd be very cool. It would totally set him up as a relevant person for 2015, which I'm not sure he is right now, in his weird, most recent slam champ way of not being that. One person who isn't going to be in London is Grigor Dimitrov, who should be there by the numbers. He is set to be the second alternate. He's ranked 11th in the race, and with Ferrer being at 10. Being the first alternate, Grigor would be there as the second alternate. But Grigor made it very clear early in the week in Bercy that he had no interest in going as an alternate. And he lived up to that and he won't be going. And so now skipping over injured Golbus, skipping over Davis Cup preparing Sanga, the next alternate will be number 14, uh, Feliciano Lopez. And this is not the first time this has happened on the ATP side. There was famously one time when number 27 
uh, Roddick Stepanek got in as an alternate. He was there as an alternate after everybody else bailed. Courtney, what do you make on Dimitrov bailing as an alternate? And I guess, in general, the alternate bailing phenomenon on the men's side. Because it does not happen on the women's side at all. It doesn't happen. And with the Stepanek thing, he had to fly in. His stuff got stuck in customs. And he had to play with, like, Novak's shoes, Andy's racket, and, like, an, and it was a mess. But he, yeah. he played. No, I mean, quite frankly, I think it's BS that uh, Grigor Dimitrov is, is kind of big-timing uh, the World Tour Finals. I think it, uh, if you're a young gun who's had a, bro- you had a breakout year, which he did, he has lots to celebrate. Um, he made his biggest run of his entire season in London mm-hmm. at uh, at Wimbledon, making the semifinals there. Any one Queens? Where any one Queens? What? Why? Why are you turning it down? It makes no sense. Like, okay, you are an alternate and you don't want to be an alternate, dude. Suck it up. Like, yeah. it's very, very petty to me. It's it's a bit immature, and you know these these there is a reason to stop and celebrate your year and just being there and being part of the facilities festivities, which he's never been a part of. At least just go there and like find out what the World Tour Finals are like. Why not? It's it's get some cash. You just go and you warm up and practice a little bit. A lot of cash. And with this field at the end of the season, with how so many people kind of tired and whatever, you might actually play a match or two. So yeah, it just it's a very perplexing decision and a very disappointing one in my opinion. I completely agree. I think that it's totally the the verb you used is completely right. He had, I don't think he's earned the right to big time this at all. I mean, he is a guy who really has not done anything honestly to justify. Well, he really hasn't justified the massive hype he's gotten in the results. He's gotten close. I mean, a slam semi. And winning a, a few big titles and having a few nice wins to his name is good. But this all strikes me as very pouty. Like, oh, well, I don't get to sit at the big kids' table, so I'm not going to go. Oh, Feliciano, you can have my seat and my $100,000 for showing up. I mean, he's still a young guy who's very much developing his game and his presence on the tour. Going can't hurt him at all. And it's a week of staying in London Especially being a second alternate, it's pretty nice. You don't really have to be at the ready until the first guy gets called in. You can just sort of sit around and relax and invite Sharapova, hang out at the Tate and let her take emo Instagram photos next to various paintings and comment on them and whatever. It would be fine. And so for him to to big time it, I just think it's really unearned. Especially with Ferrer going. I mean, Ferrer is somebody who's made the final event before. And Ferrer, as much as we don't, I, I get sick of like the... You know, the adjectives and the, oh, he's the most respected guy, just the hardest working, gets every inch out of it. If someone like Ferrer, who's been a top four guy, top three maybe even at some point, a former finalist of this event, to go as an alternate, Grigor Dimitrov can suck it up and go too. That's the thing. I think that that David Ferrer kind of like going and and being the first alternate, it just just makes Dimitrov's decision to skip even worse, you know? And I, I just think it's disappointing. He's a nice kid and I like obviously his game and I just think that he the world to a final should be seen as kind of a reward, you know, kind of a, a opportunity to to say, hey, like my season was really, really great and finishing the way that he finished is or at least having the season that he had is great. Now I'm sure that like there's an argument out there to be said, well, he should be hungrier and he shouldn't be celebrating a year in which he well, I don't know, finishes top ten, top eleven, whatever it's gonna be. I'm like, really? That's kind of a stupid argument. Like yeah. that whole trying to be like, I need to earn it. And I need, you know, that weird macho thing. That's dumb. I mean, he had a great season and he should go. And, and also on top of it, like, you know, you help the tournament out. It's, exactly. you know, the AT, you know, you, you, he's a big name player as much as people can argue whether his hype 
precedes him or not, or out, or is outsized. He's a big name player. He's a popular player. The ATP, I'm sure, would love to have him in London, and they could like use him for so many different uh, sponsor opportunities, help support the tour, help support the tournament. You want to see a player go who who who's going to do that and, yeah. and to be understand a good that it's not just about him. Exactly, it's not just about you sometimes. Yeah. Now that being said, I think that it's really really cool that Feliciano Lopez is going to get to go. I think that he's had an incredible season. An incredible season. Yeah, and pretty under the radar. Super under the radar, but he's just always been there. He's always been there. He's been pulling off big wins. He's played great tennis. He's done it quietly. So I do think that it's cool that, you know, for a week he'll get he'll get the treatment in London, which is great. And if, if he does get subbed in, which, like we said, is entirely possible, I don't know who would ripcord. I don't think anybody really, I guess Chilich, I guess, has had a little injury concern lately in the season to be the only one I could Kay think Nisha of. Corey, whoever Nisha Corey, whoever knows. Nisha Corey can always get injured, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it's totally possible that Lopez might see some action and yeah, I mean, it's one of those things Like Kerber was in Singapore. Kerber had qualified directly for the tournament the two years prior. And so it's a little bit of, must be a little bit of a come down to do that. And like the same way for Ferrer, but she was there. She didn't look happy, yeah. but she was there. And, you know, like I said, you still get like, and she had Fed Cup and she had Fed Cup coming up. Yeah. And like I said, you also get like a nice paycheck, a very nice per diem for doing this. It just makes sense. So disappointing but hopefully yeah hopefully this will be hopefully this won't happen again in the future with i don't know we have the same conversation about curios next year or something <laughs> i mean i i mean i hope that the atp does like you know let dimitrov know that they're unhappy about it like i hope that these sorts of decisions don't just like it's okay to let it slide because it's a message that you do need to be sending to the younger players and to you know the entire tour that it, it all goes towards like you know, don't sit there and bitch and moan about equal prize money and like how much you guys want more money and you want bigger prize purses and not recognize it as a tour and as a collective whole. Everybody has to do their part to help support the tour and help like, you know, support sponsorships, interact with fans and do all that sort of stuff. And little decisions like this do impact things. Here's something I heard this week in Paris, which I don't think I, I don't think I talked told you this before. You know how obviously like there's the WTA ACES program, which like is for those of you who don't know, is like uh a point system that the tour uses to encourage players to do things to promote the sport off court, you know, it's autograph signings or suite visits or whatever. And they're sort of mandatory, but they get incentives for doing it. ATP is a simple. And that's how you get the diamond aces award award that Petra won. That's how it's calculated. effectively. There is the men's program, which I think is called the stars program. I want to say it's the same thing, whatever that men's program is called. The tour is now encouraging tournaments to give men extra incentives for doing things like material ones like oh if you go do sweet visits we'll 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 give you a watch yeah no i knew about that yeah like they shouldn't need this like they don't be encouraging them to be divas about this just let them yeah i I think it's unnecessary spoiling it's crazy i mean like in shanghai one of the tournament sponsors is this company that makes these pretty rad like massage chairs Mm -hmm. and apparently like players will like and there's also, yeah, like a watch giveaway or something like that. And players will go out of their way to like try and get certain sponsorship things that they have to do to like angle for certain things. So like one player once like begged and begged and begged to do like the one event that gets them a free watch because they needed to like buy something for their dad for the birthday or something <laughs> like that. And so that was like how they're I'm like, dudes, really? Seriously, you guys. Come you on. have the money. But yeah, like 
I don't know, the whole massage chair thing always cracks me up. But they're really cool chairs, so I understand it. And they're really expensive. That's fair. <laughs> no, I mean, I just think that, in general, this goes to our point of these players have nice lives. And for them to whine about their situation or be mopey or pouty about it is not very becoming. Speaking of things that are unbecoming, once again, the issue of equal prize money came up at an unusual time of year for it. Usually this is restricted to the slams, most normally Wimbledon. And this time in October, after a, I will say, problematic BBC study that was really poorly methodologized, if that's a verb. And honestly, break that down, Ben, before you go into the other thing, because I think that that's something that's been incredibly overlooked in the course of like this whole discussion in Britain about equal prize money, because that survey is... Terrible. It's terrible. It is terrible. <laughs> BBC comes out with this study, which they're really proud of, that says that it's like complaining. That show it is a survey by survey sport. Sorry, sport by sport survey. Um, survey meaning like general overlook, not like they didn't investigate things really or survey people um, of how much prize money is awarded in various sports. And judging usually off of the world championships in any given sport. And so they were looking at what the men get for world championships and what the women get for world championships. And using that to determine how much athletes in each given sport are played. Now, everybody pretty much should know that almost every sport doesn't just get money from the world championships. In fact, from almost everybody, that's a very small percentage and a very small slice of things. The BBC had ice hockey listed as being equal because both the men and women get paid nothing at the world championships. That, that is so dumb. Like, there are literally thousands, not many thousands, probably, I'm guessing, like, I don't know, 4,000 men who make a good living in various leagues around North America and Europe playing professional ice hockey. And there's big men's franchises that at the NHL and KHL in Russia and Czech leagues and Swedish leagues and whatever else that fill stadiums of thousands of people on the regular. And there are, like, no viable women's leagues at all. Like, the number of women breaking even playing professional ice hockey is probably less than 50. Well, like, we had that Canadian goaltender, I can't remember her last name now, who, uh, women's goaltender from the Olympics, who, like, is it, like, basic? or no, not Canadian, Swedish. Finnish. Finnish. Nora Ratu. Yeah. Who, like, basically. Yeah, exactly. Who basically is amazing and awesome and so good and in the prime of her career. And she basically retired because she's like, mm, there's nowhere to play. Yeah, I can't get money for this. She's like, okay. And there's just a really, yeah. yeah. So that is, this whole BBC thing completely missed the point. It started this conversation and then it came up with this number that 30% of the time men get paid more. And if you look at like the Forbes list of 100 most paid athletes, it's like a... 97 of them are men. And the other three are tennis players. Sharapova, Lina, and Serena. So women have it way, way worse in sports than this BBC thing wants you to believe. Um, that's a very necessary starting point. But this BBC thing became a jumping off point for a bunch of discussion in Britain, most notably a column by a columnist for the Times of London named Matthew Syed, who was, as his little tagline tells you, recently voted sports columnist of the year in England and um So there you have that. And he wrote about a piece that started talking about women's soccer, football over there, and eventually delved into tennis and talked about how it was unfair the women get paid the same as the men because people like the men more and the men play best of five. It was always very tired arguments. Like, why are we having a best of five debate in October? 
guys like what are we doing <laughs> like how like rinse and repeat do you need to be with your like low-hanging fruit sports columns they're going after women playing best of three when there's like not a slam and for two months in either direction like come on guys let's stop let's re-examine our priorities here but yeah so <laughs> there were there was the line that kind of went viral and that was used as the pull away tagline by the times even promoting this column was saying like women taking money away from the men or like from Roger Federer's tantamount to daylight robbery. Oh, I have, I have the line. Okay, Would please you read it, Courtney. Like me to read it verbatim? Please. Okay. The, the line was, quote, to deprive Federer of income by handing it to female players is not far from daylight robbery. <laughs> Close quote. Lol. I mean... Which started which started a wonderful trend of hashtags from someone being like Roger, we need to set up like like a donation page to help Roger. And it was like hashtag feed Roger, hashtag house Roger, hashtag save Roger. Uh, <laughs> and I thought it, I was in Mercy and I thought about asking Roger about that in press and I was like, I can't do this with a straight face. I can't be like Roger, how is like are you poor? Does Yanina Wickmeyer drawing a paycheck really affect your life? Discuss this, how Roger. Is, how does, it's okay. How does Romina Aprandi affect you, Roger? <laughs> right. Roger, to be clear, is the top paid tennis player, men or woman, in the world, and top ten, I think, of all athletes for quite a while now, and he's doing just fine. Yeah. It's he's the, doing just fine. Matthew Syed is, like, a very good writer. He really is. I've read other columns that he's written. He's, yeah, great writer. It's just was a really confusing piece to write because a it didn't advance any new arguments um so tired specifically so tired respect to tenant and the arguments that he did pick are the exact ones that are complete red herrings like they're actually not look i think i've said this before on this podcast there is an argument to be made that equal prize that there shouldn't be equal prize money it's not an argument yeah. that i buy but but there is an argument to be made um the ones that he posited didn't really work <laughs> and so it just felt like wow what was kind of the point of that whole thing except to just like engender i don't know controversy and then people were kind of like oh good on him for taking such a bold stand and controversial stand and i always think that it's so funny when people think that like, like putting forth the majority opinion is taking a brave stand there was nothing brave like, about this let's be clear he was defending the status quo exactly it, that's not brave <laughs> no it's really really not there's nothing brave um, about saying that women don't deserve things there's nothing brave about saying that you know best of five is so great there's nothing brave about getting facts wrong about how back in the day graph and navratilova used to out earn the men that never happened that never came close to happening i don't know where he got that from because back in the day then when they were playing they didn't have equal prize money and it was much more disparate than it is now at the other tournaments so what are we even talking about here at what stage did navratilova out earn the top men didn't happen especially off court didn't happen and yeah, what are you talking about? This whole well, thing was just the, an unnecessary yeah. interlude. And it was just a lot of overreaching arguments like that. I mean, this is just from a rhetoric perspective of just like, this is just not how you make an argument. It's like, A, don't overreach on your facts on that one, which Ben just laid out about Navratilova and her earning capacity. And like the whole thing of like, no one would even know, like, you know, like who would know the last four winners of the majors for the women? compared to the men i'm like whoa dude <laughs> that was like a really bad argument 
<laughs> you're talking about you're gonna say that no one knows Serena Williams. Maria Sharapova, Lee Na, who, I don't care if anybody in Britain knows who Lee Na is. The fact that one billion people in China know who Lee Na is already trumps your argument. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Petra Kvitova, who's won your freaking tournament twice. Those four women are completely anonymous compared to Marin Cilic, like Stan Wawrinka, yeah. and Novak and Rafa. Come on. Like, that's just really bad arguing. That's really bad arguing of things. That's poor debate. That's poor debate. And that's just poor for debate. one of the other problematic things he points out is that he occasionally has enjoyed watching women's sports. So he loves it. He said, I've rarely gained more pleasure as a spectator than when Jessica Ennis won gold in the heptathlon at London 2012 or when Virginia Wade won Wimbledon in 1977. Like, it's not, you don't deserve a cookie for cheering when Jessica Ennis, an attractive British girl, wins gold for Britain and you get excited for that. And you certainly don't get excited, get a cookie for being excited when the one British woman to win Wimbledon in the last 50 years did it. They call them biscuit. Biscuit, whatever. You don't get anything. Sorry. No sweets for you at all. For Virginia Wade winning. That All that shows is that you don't care if it's not British. And maybe the only reason you care about men's tennis is Andy Murray is a man if it was andrea murray winning wimbledon would it suddenly be like great for women's sport in britain who knows i think it'd be very different actually if they had a women's champion right now but yeah the whole thing was not great and you have a pretty good analogy for it Courtney. yeah no it just it just was that it, it falls in the same category of arguments where people try and like pull the whole like well you know some of my best friends are black so let me just tell you about racial politics in America, because now I'm an expert, you know, that sort of thing. And so it just rang very like just because you could you had three great ex- or a couple of great experiences watching women doesn't mean that that actually like is a shield against any, you know, attempt to say that, like, you just don't like women's sport. It's like, no, you're it sounds like what you're saying is that you're really patriotic, <laughs> Yeah. which I think most Brits are, <laughs> you know, like that's been my experience. But yeah, so the there was though a really, I just thought, cleverly and very smartly written uh, retort to Matthew Syed's uh, article written in The Guardian by Hadley Freeman that you guys should all look up and, and we'll try and put the links uh, along with uh, our write-up because, you know, it's worth reading both just to, to put them next to each other. But she's very snarky um, with, while, while still being able to make, you know, very good and cogent arguments um, and counter arguments, many of which are the ones that we've made today. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, Ben, I think the biggest thing for me and, and one of the, the broader arguments and one reason why I really like Freeman's response is that a lot of times with the equal prize money argument, people want to point to the free market. And I think that for me, the free market argument is probably the most compelling, mm-hmm. you know, just you know, on a basic business perspective. Yeah, it's just pure economics. If TV is paying more for the men than the women, if ticket sales, if if, if fans are paying more to see the men than the women, um, things like that, then, yeah, I guess there is an obviously an economic argument to be made that you can't commingle those funds, right, and then just divvy them up 50-50. So I get that. I mean, intellectually, I still reject it and I still would like to, and I should have said this before we started out, I just hate talking about equal prize money because look, the bottom line is that equal prize money exists at the slams and it's never going to go away. It's never going to go not. away. It's just not. You don't give away rights and then take them away. There's never been an instance where that's got, like happened in this sort of situation. So I just find the whole discussion totally futile. But if people want to keep bringing it up to like slag off women and women's sport, I'm happy to have the discussion. But I one think of that's going to keep happening, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just going to keep happening. People so, are going to keep fine. grumbling. I mean, there was a, when we were discussing this in Bercy, there was a, a British reporter who said to me that um, he really agreed with the column because for him, he'd rather go to the dentist than watch women's rugby. Okay. It, that's, right. that's, that's your prerogative, sir. Um, but you don't need to. But for the reasons that equal prize money was made, which are on the basis of equality and treating men and women the same, and the fact that they've, you know, being equals in society, and it's about the message more. Than, the money is the message more than the money. Right, Billy. They're not. Yeah, you're not going to go back on that. that. Yeah. You're not going to go back on that. Yep. And so, and we should also point out that still, equal prize money is not anywhere near universal. People talk like it's a done thing in tennis. It's not. There's a lot of tournaments that still give way more to the men. There's more money out there for men because of this this you know classification system the women have, where they only have four mandatories quote-unquote the men have nine masters so at tournaments like cincinnati at tournaments like rome the men get paid far more people don't really realize that i don't think a lot of times but it's true um equal prize money is the exception not the rule and so there's a lot of progress to be made and so to act like it's not going to change so and it's not bold or brave to speak down at women's sports yes like these, um, these, these soccer players playing that he brings up playing in front of 700 people in their stadiums sometimes don't need to be told that they're terrible. This is, yeah, that's the thing is like, what was the point of this? But, um, but yeah, going back to kind of the free market argument, um, which I always say, like it, it, it can be compelling. The thing that Freeman points out and is really why at the end of the day, I reject the free market argument, not from a practical perspective, because I understand that pragmatically that is how the world works, but I feel like people just don't really peel back the layers is that you assume that the free market is a level playing field and it's not the, the the free market and the people who are the decision makers who are making decisions about how much money the tv contracts are how much you know and negotiating these contracts and putting the value on what is what even from the fans who buys what there is a sexist component to it the fact that you're going to write an entire argument of like i just don't like watching women play sports well that's kind of sexist like in its own little way and and if that sort of like decision making is driving a large mass of people then, yeah, you're going to affect the free market, the quote unquote free market. So you can't really use that as like always like the catch all fallback of like, well, the free market is dictating like who should get paid more and who should pay, get paid less. Like, yeah, that, that applies unless the market is, is somewhat rigged in some way or shape or form. For all these arguments about people saying women shouldn't be doing, shouldn't be boxing or shouldn't be doing other sports or things unladylike or damaging to their feminine qualities somehow. I mean, that's inherently sexist. I mean, you can say, you know, boxing is brutal for everyone. But to say, oh, but women shouldn't do it because they're fragile flowers of people is right. ridiculous. And that all comes Which, from a systemic thing. Yeah. And from talk about system, I think it's still I think it's still the case that none of the ITF tenants board members are women. Everyone on their governing board is a man in twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. So and those are the people riding the Grand Slams and Davis Cup and Fed Cup and so that's significant. The, the, well, it's, it's a patriarchy in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and, and it trickles down into tennis. I mean, the bottom line is, like, you know, when you talk about sports journalism, it's still a male-dominated world. It is a male space. It is, like, you know, I think no one's going to ever argue that right now. Um, and when what happens sometimes, 
or not sometimes, but what is just going to inevitably happen when you have a male-dominated space is it's a lot of guys talking to each other, and they kick their ideas off each other, and they all kind of end up agreeing, and it becomes an echo chamber, not unlike Twitter can become an echo chamber, or any group of friends can become an echo chamber. And that's why diversity is valued, right? Like, that's why it's valued at universities, that's why it's valued at corporations, et cetera, et cetera, is that if you have more people coming from different walks of life and different views on the world and that helps inform everyone else and people realize well actually maybe the way that i'm thinking about things is a little bit antiquated and i should modernize and etc etc but it wouldn't surprise me if there are still pockets of the sports journalism world where that doesn't happen and it's a lot of guys patting each other on the back saying yes well women's tennis is an absolute like you know there's no point in watching it and it's terrible and you know and they all talk and there's no one in there anybody that they're listening to who can stop them and say well hold on yeah like, and not even let's, that, not let's even have this discussion like why why do you think that you know what i mean and so if you just have a lot of people just kind of hating on women's tennis like together over beers that's never going to change like their mentality is just never going to change no completely people say different things when there are no insert segment of population within earshot i mean Male sports reporters will talk differently about, about women's sports when there's no women around. I mean, I've witnessed this phenomenon constantly. Um, and same with any sort of, you know, racial topic that comes up. People talk differently when they know who their audience is. And I think, like you said, the echo chamber, male sports writers bounce these things off and they become truths to themselves because they don't have anyone else challenging that or even sitting there awkwardly listening to them to make them regulate what they're saying. And so... This. And it goes up the chain to editors and it goes, yep. up, you know, and then all that gets trickled down to readers. I mean, it's just a cycle. If everybody's saying the same thing, whether it's right or wrong, just if no one's challenging certain ideas, it's just it just keeps happening. It's just it's a frustrating thing to see. I mean, because like I said, there's a way to make the, this a cogent argument if you want to make the whole argument about equal prize money and yeah. how it sucks. I think someone who does that actually is Gilles Simone. When yeah. he does it, Gilles Simone um, gets lumped in with Sakovsky and other men who complain about price money a lot, but Joe Simone does it on pretty much pure economic forces, free marketplace terms, and talks about how men get much more press coverage in almost every newspaper, which is completely true, and how, you know, audiences, whatever. Those, those are rational arguments. I understand that. I don't think that they should change anything, and I don't, like we said, the reasons why equal prize money arrived mean that it should never leave, or can never leave, I think, because of how it entered. But there, are, oh. there is there is rationale that's not offensive that's out there. Oh, can I just read this one paragraph from yeah. um, this Hadley article that kind of mm-hmm. nails home what I meant to say, but kind of muddied it up a little bit? Please. Uh, so, yeah. And so because I think she really nails the point and to the extent that I kind of meandered in the course of my uh, uh, arguing it, then I'll let her take it away. She writes... No one, seriously, no one is suggesting that female footballers should be paid the same as male Premier League players, although the disparity should not be so big. When Manchester City won the Premier League last year, they were awarded £24 million, while Liverpool's champion women's team won a feminine, sexy zero. Market forces, market forces bleat the anti-equal pay brigade, not sexism, say certain commentators. Let's look at what's behind sports' famously unsexist market forces. Men's team sports attract media coverage, which brings public interest, which in turn leads to sponsorship deals, which lead to more media coverage. For women's team, sports is in the inverse. 
a vicious circle of no media coverage means no public interest, means no sponsorship deals, means no media coverage. This is not, if you'll forgive a sporting metaphor here, a level playing field. The way to level it is to accord female athletes more media coverage and more financial rewards, which will in turn foster public interest. You know, like what happened with men's football. So I think that's exactly right. Is like, again, like when people are, when you have people who dismiss women's sport running the coverage of of sport as a whole it's going to skew away from the women and that's going to impact how much those women make how much coverage they get etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's historic i mean the men because of this this patriarchy is not a new phenomenon the men had a massive head start right and so i think some of the women's sports are just simply not ready for prime time yet I mean, even like we talked about women's hockey. I mean, some of the games in the Olympics were just not super watchable because the depth of talent pool isn't there. Because playing hockey is a rel- at an organized level is a relatively new thing for women compared to the decades and decades and over a century men have been doing it internationally and at high levels elsewhere. But, you know, give them time. There's no reason to say it has to be perfect right away. Yeah. And I, I think I think I think I think I've said this before and I think you'll agree with me. Like the bottom line is that if you give the media coverage, people become fans, people begin to care and then people begin to tune in and that helps build things and to where there's that builds into sponsorship, viewership, etc. If you do not cover it, if you completely just slag it, like then yeah, it is going to die in the vine. You're right. It doesn't that, but that is not an inherent reflection of the value of the sport. You know what I mean? Like if you, cho- I mean, there's 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 power to to in everybody's hands to kind of build up or tear down anything. Mm-hmm. And so, build when you can, folks. Build when you can. Why not? It's in everybody's best interest. I say. Yep, indeed. By popular demand, uh, we are going to bring back, at least for this episode, our rant rave corner, where we end the show by getting wildly excited about something for positive or negative reasons. Uh, Courtney, you're the one who heard these requests, so we're going to let you go first. What is on your mind right now? Oh, so many things. As most of you know, who follow me on Twitter, I can rant or rave about anything. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that I love. There are so many things I can't stand. But I'm feeling in a super, super positive mood these days. So I'm going to go with something that I really, really like. I am going to go with a podcast recommendation. And um, I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. Um, I Yeah, I love them. But um, And no, this is not a recommendation for Serial, although you should all probably be. be I know everybody thought it was going to be, but like you guys should all be listening to Serial anyway because it's amazing and it's awesome. And if you get on it late, like you won't have people to talk to um, to figure out if Adnan Syed did it or not. So definitely listen to that. But um, no, there's this other uh, podcast called The Truth, which is really, really great. It's basically um, it's a podcast that's part of the Radiotopia family of broadca- uh, podcasts, all of which are really, really fantastic. Uh, but it's basically this podcast kind of done as um, like radio shows, I guess, or like one act plays effectively or something like that. Um, and so it's performed pieces in on in the podcast that are originally most of them are original and modern day because sometimes you'll find a lot of podcasts that do like old timey crime type 
old school 1940s radio type stuff, but this is super modern and the stories are really interesting. They're really well performed. Um, most of the times they're just 15 minutes, but they're riveting to listen to. So I would highly recommend people listen to it. It's been like my soundtrack. I can't get enough of it. There you go. You've been listening to a lot of podcasts. I remember even when I was, uh, when we were together in Singapore, you were constantly doing it more than, more than usual. I think you're in a I phase here. You know why? Because when, well, when Singapore, it wasn't an issue. But when I was in China, I had such problems getting onto the internet to, like, listen or to read, um, mm-hmm. like, articles like I normally do. But yeah. I could but I could download the podcasts okay. So uh, that was how I was keeping up with what was going on back home. And then it just became, like, part of the routine. Like, I was just constantly having podcasts going. So that's basically what I've been doing, even when I've been home. I've been listening to them much more frequently. Part of it is also I've just found a whole bunch of new podcasts that I really, really love um, that are really interesting. So I've been delving into those. There you go. Okay. My thing is also somewhat audio-based. While I was home, when I was supposed to be in China, supposed to be, quote-unquote, when I was thinking I was going to be in China and then wasn't given a visa by the government. Um, I was home unexpectedly for a few weeks, but it happened to work out that a bunch of my favorite musical acts were coming to D.C. at the same time. Lily Allen was the first one, and then Licky Lee, the Swedish singer, and Yell, who's a French singer who just has a new album out, which I tweeted about earlier this week, uh, which is very good. And one of the interesting things about it was that the first two, anyway, didn't really happen to Yell, but the first two, I had very different experiences with people using their phones as cameras during it. It was at the 9.30 Club in D.C., which is a pretty small venue. I think it's like 1,200 people tops, including like a balcony. So it's pretty pretty small. And we, we saw this a little bit, according with uh, Wynn Butler at uh, Arcade Fire. Yeah. But so at, at Lily Allen, there were these two girls sitting next, standing next to me, so standing room only venue, who the entire time, not for the entire time, but like for a solid 20 minutes, were just like posing for selfies with just each other. And like not even with like Lily Allen in the background, just like with their faces, making duck faces for like a solid 20 minutes. Like, ladies, you are not looking any different second to second. You're not suddenly going to get better looking (laughs) by a fluke of doing this repeatedly. And so it got me thinking about, you know, selfie culture and how narcissistic kids today are and stuff and everything grumpy and teenager about that. And then Licky Lee came on and midway through her second song, she suddenly was like, stop, 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 stop. And like her band stopped. And she was like, I there see so many cameras and phones and I'm very shy. And if you could put the cameras away, I can't go on with the cameras. Could you do that, please? Could you look down from your phone for one moment and live in the moment? Because I'm so shy. It's like, this is weird. <laughs> it was very strange. You're doing awkward. a very good Swedish licky lee. <laughs> there was one guy who very was there. Very I, I got there early, and there was one guy who had, like, a real, like, camera. Like a mm, point-and-shoot type looking thing. But a nice, I don't know, camera terms. But it was a real camera, not a camera phone. And he was, t- he was bragging to the other girl sitting near us that he had his own YouTube channel. And so he had his own YouTube channel. He was going to put the videos from this concert on his channel. And so Licky was looking at him and like, could you please put your camera down? Because I'm shy. And I can't, even though I'm up here, I'm very shy. And eventually he did, and he seemed sad. I don't know. And I, on one level, agreed with her. And the other level, I thought she was being ridiculous. Like, why, if you're in, on stage in front of a thousand people, stop talking about being shy. <laughs> that seems like an inher- inherent 
flaw in logic. But she, um, may, I mean, Licky Lee inherently makes bedroom music, like like music that like she records in her bedroom. That's true. You know what that's I mean? True. Like it's very insular. She's a very indoor kid. Yeah, she, I, we, she and I are kindred spirits. It's like when people meet me in public, and I'm like weirdly like, hello. Yeah, I don't deal with being in public very well. Um, but. It, I I feel I have the exact same reaction you do you did Ben at concerts because on one hand I'm like look enjoy the freaking moment you doofuses like when the pl- artist comes out take out your camera take a few pictures you have you have one minute to get all your pictures in the beginning and then like maybe in the middle for one minute and then maybe at the end or if there's like that's some it. cool lighting configuration comes off right. you want to take a photo of that but Fine. you grab it you snap you put your phone away enjoy the concert you know make memories enjoy the moment. But at the same time, I'm also kind of like, look, like this person paid the exact same money as everybody else. If that's how they want to enjoy the concert and maybe that's just the way that they enjoy a concert. So be it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, OK, that's fine. It's like people if you think about it, like people who like tweet a lot about tennis. Right. When you mm-hmm. go like for some people and I would include myself in it, part of my enjoyment of watching a tennis match is being on Twitter for it. So, like, I could imagine, like, if I was, like, sitting courtside at a match and, like, everybody thought I was just looking at my phone all the time, they're like, oh, it's so obnoxious. And it's kind of like, yeah, okay, maybe it's obnoxious, but this is kind of how I have come to learn how to enjoy yeah. the communion of tennis as it is for me. So, yeah, it's tough. I mean, no, I, I at concerts, though, I definitely am kind of like... I just basically silently judge everybody and hate everyone for holding up their phones, but I would never say anything to, like be like put down your phone <laughs> yeah i was looking at but she would like literally like stopped the show it was like stop stop and it was like awkward silence for a solid 90 seconds while she talked about phones and shyness just be win butler just take it away <laughs> yeah that's what he did win butler was just grabbing people's phones and confiscating them and then giving them back at the end yeah. but who knew if each person got the correct phone back because exactly. i would kind of doubt that and to be fair for win butler i mean the song that they were singing at the time that he took all the phones away was about about cell phones and about how like you lose your soul like yeah. in them and people were trying to take pictures and it was like mm, do you not understand that that's kind of anyways anyways oh, yeah. i also think though for like taking videos of concerts i feel like people never never rewatch them in general but videos a, in general i feel like people don't use i agree they with that. they don't use them except that i as one who can't go to every concert in the entire world totally rely on these people <laughs> like it's true. you know like when i find like a, some bootleg recording of some random song like i'm like oh this is great i'm so glad this person took this so that's the other thing too why i'm like even though i totally judge people i'm like oh i might end up relying on one of you fuckers like <laughs> You know, one day at four o'clock in the morning when I've fallen down a YouTube hole. So it's a conundrum. It is. The trials of our day. Tough. Stuff. Yeah, no, but on the point of the phone tweet thing, like I was sitting watching Ferrer Goffin in in, uh, Paris here, sitting like a few rows behind the baseline. Apparently I was on visible in some TV shot of one of them at some point. I was like looking down at my phone. Everyone's like, pay attention, you know. And I was like tweeting like a score update, like so just sort of reporting, quote unquote, about the match. Yeah. Doesn't look like work. When I'm looking at my phone, but you know, not all phone looking is inherently bad. I agree with that. Phones are nice things. They make our lives oftentimes richer. They do. Although looking at your phone in the presence of another person when you're trying to have a conversation is inherently rude. Kids, don't do it. Stop doing it. Y'all do it all the time. It's incredibly rude. Stop it. It's bad habit. Don't do it. Get off her lawn. That's my second rant. I knew I couldn't. I knew I couldn't just be positive. (laughs) 
I was going to delve into some complaining at some point. <laughs> the whining is strong in this one. Yeah. I just can't help it. All right. So on that, we will leave it there uh, for this episode. Thank you guys very much for listening to us rant and rave about tennis and completely unrelated things to that. If you want to follow us along for more complaining elsewhere, you can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis, which usually isn't very complainful, but our personal Twitter handles of Ben Rothenberg and 40 Deuce Twits are probably whinier if that's what you want. You can also like our show on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast, and you can subscribe to our show on iTunes and other podcast app services and leave reviews and cool stuff like that and if you have a question for an upcoming episode you can email it to us at no challenges remaining at gmail.com i just got this genius idea ben when uh-huh. we're in london we should do our next podcast from the london eye and then it would be 45 minutes of me freaking out because i'm scared of heights and trying to talk about tennis <laughs> that's that's just compelling. That's just compelling audio. <laughs> you know what? This is all you. I will go along for this ride if you want to do that. That's that's fine. We need to do. Or we can just go to the. Or we can just go to the tape. I think we're. I think we're not gimmicky enough as a show, and that's probably true. We should do. We, more we should do more gimmicks. If you guys have gimmick suggestions for a show, like Courtney and Ben on a train, Courtney and Ben, you know, in. A restaurant. We could do one for Mason Applebee's. We probably should do it some. We meant to do one for Mason Applebee's, yeah. and it. I think it's always too loud. Yeah, there's and a lot of players always around. So it was like, can we really talk about players when they're sitting right next? Yeah, to probably us? not. Um, we'll figure one out. We'll do, we'll do some more gimmick podcasts. But if you guys have suggestions for good. any yeah. effect of the show, I mean, we're this is our 90th episode, or more than that. This is episode number 90. Um, we could certainly use some new tricks. <laughs> I mean. Well, yeah, and, and we're about to head into the off season, So, right. you know, we would love to hear any constructive compliments. Um, <laughs> and, or criticism. Uh, or yes, criticism. Or, or criticism. Uh, no, anything. Like, just, a, you know, we want to be good and we want to be better. And that's, uh, that's our goal. I think we're pretty good about being pretty regular, which is, I think, a big leap forward. We try. Yeah, so I think that that's pretty good. We finally got rid of blurred lines, so which we got a lot of complaining have, about. Which were legit, even though it's still a great cover. See, here's um, the thing: because this is our first episode without it, I will say I think blurred line. I think our intro, 15 seconds of intro, was a really good 15 seconds of intro. I already miss it in some ways because it started our show off with like oomph. If yep. people didn't, there were no lyrics in our intro. Also. Um, there was nothing quote-unquote rapey about our intro because people loved using that word with that song. We talked about the song when it came out. Both you and I, Courtney, like that song, the original version, as weird as it is. We think it has its own merits and that it deflects the criticism. I think a lot of the criticisms of it were pretty knee-jerky. Um, the song is gross if you want to make it gross. I mean, fine, it's kind of a gross song. But there's merit in skeevy music sometimes. It's a legitimate part of society that needs to be reflected in song occasionally. These and skeevy dudes exist! Oh, yeah. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. 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 But now we're back to, and this is another song by Vampire Weekend, which is our house band. That was a cover, by the way. So random, by the way, that Pekovich tweeted that cover this week. I know. (laughs) That was pretty random. It was random. She gets around to it eventually. Eventually. She sees the light. She's a little slow. It's the German in her, like Boris Becker. I guess so. I guess so. Um, With that, we'll say, off Wiedersehen. 
Bye. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye. Tschüss.